The passage of scripture I'd like to read is out of John chapter 20, verses 1 through 18. This is actually a passage of scripture I'm not only using for this uh, particular video, but also for our meeting for worship that we're holding outside um, this Sunday, as well as our sunrise service. There's various parts of it which are just beautiful for me as I reflect upon it. John chapter 20, verses 1 through 18. Early in the morning of the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. She ran to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said, They've taken the Lord from the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. Peter and the other disciple left to go to the tomb, and they were running together, but the other disciple ran faster than Peter and was the first to arrive at the tomb. Bending down to take a look, he saw the linen cloth lying there, but he didn't go in. Following him, Simon Peter entered the tomb and saw the linen cloth lying there. He also saw the face cloth that had been on Jesus' head, and it wasn't with the other clothes, but was folded up in its own place. Then the other disciple, the one who arrived at the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed, but they didn't yet understand the scripture that Jesus must rise from the dead. Then the disciples returned to the place where they were staying. Mary stood outside near the tomb crying, and as she cried, she bent down to look into the tomb. She saw two angels dressed in white seated to where the body of Jesus had been, one at the head and one at the foot. The angels asked her, woman, why are you crying? And she replied, they've taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they put him. And as soon as she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't know it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you crying? What are, and who are you looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she replied, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned to him and said in Aramaic, Rabbi, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Don't hold on to me, for I have not yet gone up to my father. Go to my brothers and sisters and tell them, I'm going up to my father and your father, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene left and announced to the disciples, I've seen the Lord. Then she told them what he said to her. I think everyone loves a good resurrection story. There's the story of the athlete whose career begins to tank, but then he or she makes a comeback and resurrects their career. There's the person caught in a scandal, and they experience the proverbial fall from grace, but then they manage to put their life back together again and resurrect their career. There's the actor or the actress that was once at the top of their game, and then all of a sudden they're no longer the box office hit. But then in later years, they rebrand themselves, and everything falls into place, and they resurrect their career. Resurrection stories are not just about people. I've seen and read and heard about organizations and congregations on the brink of collapse, literally writing their own obituary, if you will, or fighting just to survive. And then they dig deep and they catch a new vision, or they make the necessary hard choices and changes, and they adapt and move in a new direction, and the next thing you know, they're a new business, they're a new organization, they are a new congregation. In fact, someone might even come and say or visit them, I don't even recognize this place. It's like a whole new different organization or congregation. And it's not just about the famous or organizations. I've witnessed everyday people become resurrection stories. There's the person who goes through the messy divorce and 
Life as well as social circles comes to a screeching halt, but over time the wounds heal. And the pain becomes less, and they rediscover joy and love once more, and their life feels resurrected. There's the person who's found comfort, maybe in a bottle, but it's also sabotaged everything and important and valuable in their life. So they make that hard, hard decision to admit that their life is unmanageable, and they show up at a recovery meeting, and their life begins to move in another direction, one filled with hope and healing and resurrection. There's a person who loses a loved one, a parent, a spouse, a partner, a child, even a pet. They lose them to death, and each day they feel the weight of their grief and their sorrow. And they don't know how much longer they can carry it, but then over time, and time really is a healer, they begin to heal. The memory of the person or the pet is still with them, but the hurt becomes less and less. The hurt doesn't completely go away because grief is something we carry with us for the rest of our lives. But rather than grief being an obstacle, it then becomes a teacher and sometimes even a friend as it reminds us and them to value each day, value each person, value all that is important to us in our lives and to hold fast the memory of the one we loved. And resurrection begins to take place in that person's heart and soul. Resurrection stories abound, but we often miss them because maybe we're looking for a resurrection theology or resurrection explanations or resurrection PowerPoints or resurrection creeds. Now, maybe this is helpful to some point and can be helpful to someone, but they all have the tendency to reduce the resurrection down to a formula or a few words or a static creed that we recite that has no meaning for us. And these are attempts at resurrection explanations, but they're not resurrection stories. And I find resurrection stories far more powerful and far more convincing. In the Gospels, the resurrection is conveyed to us through the eyes of people and through their stories. And these stories are unique and personal to each person. There's no such thing as a one-size-fits-all resurrection story. The living Christ meets us at the very unique places of our own deadness and woundedness and struggle and pain and doubts and invites us to open our hearts and souls to an aliveness that is so much different than we could ever manufacture on our own. There are the two disciples we read about in John 20, Simon Peter and, quote, the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. They ran to the tomb upon hearing the report from Mary that Jesus is not in the tomb. Upon arriving, they discover that Jesus really is not in the tomb. And then John writes that the other disciple, quote, saw and believed. They didn't understand the scripture that Jesus must rise from the dead. You know, one doesn't necessarily have to understand all that is going on to trust something that is life-giving and revolutionary as this. I'm often asked a question, especially around this time of year, whether or not I believe in that resurrection stuff. And here's what I tell people. I say, you know, I can't explain it. And sometimes I don't even understand it. But what I can say is I've seen people who have lived as if they were dead and they've come alive. I've seen dead marriages, dead relationships, dead churches, and people with a deadened sense of purpose or view of life come alive with hope and energy and new life. And this, I say, I take as the living Christ that is alive and present within the person, within our world, within all of creation, raising them up to new life and energizing them with new hope. I've always loved these words by the late Alan Jones in his book, Passion for Pilgrimage, when he writes this, quote, the resurrection means trouble for us who are comfortable 
with being only half alive. What then in me needs to be raised from the dead? What part of you, long since rejected and forgotten, needs to be touched and restored to life? I think it's a great question. Are you and I really comfortable with being only half alive? Now there's Mary Magdalene who first arrives at the tomb and sees that the tomb is empty. And as she lingers, Jesus appears to her along with two angels. Out of her grief and sadness, Mary's crying. And the resurrected Jesus asks her, why are you crying? Who are you looking for? The living Christ doesn't trivialize her grief, nor does he tell her just to believe. Rather, he seeks to know her personally, her grief, as well as understand her deepest longings. And when Jesus calls her by name, Mary recognizes him as the resurrected Jesus. And she goes back to the other disciples with this simple message, I've seen the Lord. Now, like Mary, we are a, resurrec a resurrection story every time we hear the resurrected Jesus call us by name and ask us about our deepest pain and grief. To be called by name is a very personal and intimate act. It indicates a knowing beyond just being a mere acquaintance. Jesus calls us all by name. The resurrected Jesus comes to us personally and invites us to share with him our deepest sorrow, grief, and pain. Jesus wants to know about the tears that start deep in our soul and then find their way through our eyes. It's in this kind of encounter that we truly see the living Christ present and alive, and we encounter the resurrected Jesus. We still can't fully explain it, but we know, we know deep down we have experienced and encountered hope and love, and maybe that's all we can describe it in that moment is hope and love, but we know we've encountered it. Then there's Thomas. This is the one who gave us the phrase doubting Thomas, because when Jesus first appeared to Thomas and the disciples, Thomas wanted proof that Jesus was alive. Thomas wanted to see the wounds left by the nails and the wound in Jesus' side. He was, he's going to play the skeptic. He wasn't going to rush into faith. He chose to hold out some doubt and uncertainty. And eight days later, Jesus appears to Thomas and the disciples and offers them peace. And then he invites Thomas to put his finger on the wounds left by the nails and the wound in his side. And then he invites Thomas to believe or to trust and Thomas responds, my Lord and my God. And we can be a resurrection story even with our doubts, even with our uncertainty and our skepticism. Jesus doesn't fault or condemn Thomas for any of that. He simply comes to Thomas as the living resurrected Jesus and stands with him in the midst of his doubts and skepticism, and he invites him to trust. When Thomas experienced and saw that someone wounded can still be resurrected and alive, he extends his trust. Jesus doesn't fault or condemn our skepticism and doubts. Rather, Jesus shows us that he stands with us in our woundedness and our pain and also shows us that we can receive peace and be alive even as we carry our own woundedness and our own pain, our own doubts, our own skepticism, and even our own uncertainties. And even then, we still have the capacity to say, my Lord and my God, and still not fully understand. And then there are all the disciples that are cowering for days behind locked doors for fear of the authorities and fearful for their lives. The resurrected Jesus comes and stands among them. Jesus transcends their fears and their attempts to keep life locked out and offers them peace. They're then filled with joy, but even then, even then they continue to hide behind locked doors. 
They are resurrection stories because they encounter the peace and joy of the living Christ even as they wrestle and struggle with their fears. Jesus doesn't require that they give up their fears in order to receive peace and joy. He, he transcends their fears and their attempts to keep life locked out, and he brings peace to their existence. And we can be a resurrection story when we encounter the living Christ in the midst of our own fears and our attempts to lock out the dangers and unpredictability of life. We try to keep life secure. We try to keep it predictable and control it at every turn. And yet, even then, we find ourselves living in fear and anxiousness. But the living Christ transcends even our fears, our anxiousness, and our attempts to lock out and secure ourselves against the uncertainties of life and stands in our midst and stands in the midst of our fears and insecurities and will breathe on us peace and joy. Breathe simply meaning bringing the Spirit. This is not a peace and joy that replaces our fears and insecurity, but it's with us as we learn to let go of our fears and insecurities. Jesus never demands that we let go of our fears and insecurities before Jesus comes to us. Rather, he simply transcends all we do to lock out life and offers us peace and joy when we're ready to receive it. These are all resurrection stories. And they continue on past the Gospels, and they live into the New Testament through people like the Apostle Paul and many more. These are stories of people who encounter the living Christ in real time and in real ways, and their lives are never the same. They experience forgiveness, peace, and a renewed sense of purpose. They experience a change in their lives that takes their lives in a new direction. They experience courage that emboldens them to live faithfully and joyfully in a very unpredictable world. They experience a deepening of love and compassion for others that propels them into offering help to those who are suffering and justice for those that are oppressed. And they experience a renewed understanding of how their lives are all new creations and God is inviting them to co-create a world that is also becoming a new creation filled with mercy and justice and compassion, love of neighbor, and a peace that nurtures a flourishing world. But these resurrection stories, they don't end there. Mm -mm. These resurrection stories, they continue on in and through you and I. I've always been intrigued. As to that in John 20, we are told that that one disciple that comes to the tomb is Simon Peter, and the other disciple is, well, he's called the other disciple. Now, some believe this to be James, the brother of Jesus, or possibly John, the son of Zebedee. I want to suggest this. I want to suggest that this other disciple is you and I. Maybe John did this intentionally when he wrote this gospel. Maybe he left this disciple unnamed so that we could put ourselves in that place, so that we can become that disciple. Maybe this other disciple is not given a name because all of us, you and I, are this other disciple running to the tomb to see for ourselves what is going on. And maybe like this other disciple, we believe, yet we don't quite understand all that is going on when it comes to the resurrection, and that's okay. We don't have to have a well-thought-out theology. All we need is to be open, open to an encounter and to extend as much trust as we're able to open our hearts and lives to in that moment to the life-giving presence of the resurrected Christ. Today, this Easter weekend, we are this other disciple. We're all potential resurrection stories and resurrection stories in the making. 
We all have our moments of grief and weeping. We all have moments of skepticism and doubt. We all have moments of fear and insecurity. We all have moments of disillusionment and hopelessness and cynicism. We all have our pain and woundedness. And we all have those moments when we feel we don't know what to do next and all meaning and purpose has been taken from our lives. And we all have moments when we feel tired and exhausted and weary. We all have these moments, but none of these moments prevents or prohibits us from encountering the resurrected Jesus and beginning to write and live our own resurrection story. I go back to my literary friend, Alan Jones, to help with my own stumbling around the resurrection. And he writes these words, quote, when we ask, did it really happen? We must also ask, am I really happening? Am I opening, am I open to happening in new ways? The resurrection happened and it goes on happening so that you and I can really happen. And then referencing the scene where Jesus stood amongst the disciples behind their locked doors, Alan Jones offers these words, peace be unto you. And Jesus showed them his hands and his side. And it is as God in Christ is saying to us, hesitate no longer. Receive the covenant of reconciliation. Receive the wounding of my peace. Receive the resurrection. Receive yourself alive. Easter is now. Yes, Easter is now. And Easter is every day. Easter is this eternal now that is with us continually and always inviting us to become a resurrection story. The best stories are never written well the first time. There is no getting it right the first time. Most great stories, they go through a series of rough drafts. We are all resurrection rough drafts, seeking to live out a resurrection story that combines both the raw material and the messiness and the uncertainty of our lives and bringing it together with the hope and aliveness found in the living resurrected Christ. As Eugene Peterson wrote, the Bible is not a script for a funeral service, but it is the record of God always bringing life where we expected to find death. Everywhere, it is the story of resurrection. And you and I are part of that story. It probably feels as if for the past year, another story has been written. One of lockdowns, uncertainty, sickness, deadness, grief, frustration, impatience, and division, but you know, time to write a different story. It's time to start writing some new chapters. It's time to write a Deep River Friends resurrection story and new chapter. It's time to write a Scott Wagner resurrection story and new chapter. It's time to write a resurrection story in which you are both the author and the main character. And no story ever writes itself, so let's get writing. Or should I say, let's get living. The writer and theologian N.T. Wright put it this way, what we all need from time to time is for someone, a friend, a spiritual director, a stranger, a sermon, a verse of scripture, or simply the inner prompting of the spirit to say, it's time to wake up. You've been asleep long enough. The sun is shining and there is a wonderful day out there. So wake up and get a life. And I would add a resurrection life.